Welcome to episode number 28, where today we're going to be reading chapter 15. Chapter 15 is called Anzac Day. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Crushing Indie Potential podcast, where I give you the latest tips and tricks to help you stay on top of your mental game. My name is Scott B. Harris, and I'm the author of the book, Crushing in Potential, Living with My Injured Brain. It's a memoir that was written and published after a dirt bike accident that nearly took my life. In season two of this podcast, I will be reading part two of my book. Part two outlines how I chose to overcome the adversity that I faced. Strap yourself in because the show is about to start. Welcome back, you good-looking human beings. Uh, I have had a pretty good week this week. Uh, what have you been doing? What have you been up to? Uh, I've actually uh, started my started speaking again um, recently. At uh, my first gig was at a study camp in a study camp in the city uh, from Vermont Secondary College. So all the all the people from Vermont, shout out to you guys. And today I am actually heading down to a study camp at Anglesey down at the beach. And it would have actually been a really nice drive down there if it was a nice and sunny, nice sunny day. But we're in Melbourne, so I can't always expect that there's, I can actually never expect that there's going to be a sunny day. But uh, that's 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 why we love Melbourne, isn't it? All right, let's get into it. Uh, before I start, I just want to show my gratitude for you taking the time out of your day to listen to what I have to say. You see, time is the most precious resource that we can never get back. So I appreciate you spending your most valuable asset listening to the things that I share with you. So thank you very much. We are up to chapter number 15, and this chapter is called Anzac Day. And the quote that goes with this chapter, Are the going down of the sun, and in the morning we will remember them, by Robert Lawrence Binion. In the early hours of the morning, on 25th of April 1915, not even a year after the beginning of World War I, over 4,000 troops from the Australian New Zealand Army Corps, in brackets, most army volunteers, landed their boats on the shores of Gallipoli, Turkey. This was 1.6 kilometres north of their intended location, and instead of facing a wide-open beachfront, they were faced with steep cliffs full of Turkish forces ready to hold them at bay. It was a failed mission with no turning back. The Battle of Gallipoli lasted for the next eight months and cost the lives of over 8,700 men in battle. Although the Allied forces lost the battle, this was a defining moment in Australian history. Anzac Day was originally created as a day of remembrance for these troops, but now we remember all who have served 
and died for their nation in war. Each year, on the same shores of Gallipoli, a dawn service is held in commemoration of that dark day. Attending the dawn service had been on my bucket list for years, and now I would make it happen. Before I had left for my trip, I did some research and read that the best way to go to the service was with a tour. This was a great idea because I would be able to see some landmarks of Turkey as well. An optional extra was to follow on to Egypt to see, see the great pyramids of Giza and other ancient wonders. We are now on page 122. I added this extra to the list thinking, why not right? My credit card was already too far in. There was no turning back. I flew from Vancouver to Istanbul and once, once landed, my mission was to get to my next checkpoint. In my mind, entry into the country was just a matter of collecting my luggage and walking, walking out the door. I was not aware that a visa was required. When I arrived, the first thing that be- became apparent to me was that I had no visa and I needed one. My cognitive stresses went into meltdown. My anxiety rose and I started to panic. The way the brain works is that under stress, it releases a hormone called cortisol, which kills cells in the hippocampus. The hippocampus plays an important role in our cognitive function. So when people are under stress, there's no wonder they can't think straight. Now add in an injured brain to the, to the equation and you might as well curl up in the corner. My initial thoughts were, no one told me that I needed a visa. What do I do? Hmm, I wonder if I can call mum. Every new country I visited, I was faced with the same initial fear, and it would take time to settle in and understand how things worked. I had been in Turkey for all of half an hour, and was already in a stressful situation. Once I asked the right questions at the information desk, and I was told where to get one, I felt a little more at ease. All I needed to do was follow the signs to the tourist visa office, pay the small fee, and then I was on my way. I was staying in a hotel booked through the tour company, so the tour company took over from that moment on. A chauffeur with a sign met me and drove me directly to the hotel where someone else took over and directed me all the way to my room. I was surprised there was no one waiting for me in my room to tell me when it was lights out and to tuck me into bed. This was very organised and there wasn't much room to breathe. It felt like I was on a holiday with the tribe. It even felt like I was still in hospital unable to look after myself. In the van on the way from the airport to the hotel, I met a super friendly couple, Simon and Sarah from Perth. They were doing the same trip to Gallipoli, but with a different tour company. Simon worked in the mines just north of Perth, and Sarah was a nurse in Fremantle. We are now on page 121. Simon and I were both electricians. This helped to build a bond between us. The following morning, the tour company had the next checkpoint under control. I was taken to another hotel where I met two women who were also on the tour and were also from Australia. I'm just going to go quickly out of the book here and 
tell you about these tour companies. So there's a few tour companies that all sort of band together. And when you go on the Anzac Day tour, they all seem to to follow the exact same route, and they and they take the take the same stops, make the same stops all the way around Turkey. So although I was on a tour with only with only twelve other people, I I actually actually got to hang out with oh, hundreds of other people and speak to heaps of people at every different stop. You, and most of most of the time you're away, you're, you're all staying in the same hotel as well. So these these two, the two that I met in the van on the way to the to the hotel, they were uh, they were with another tour company. But we all uh, I saw them many times through that trip. All right, back to the book. We had free time, so we were able to wander around Istanbul for the day and explore it a bit. I thought this was great, so off off we went. But as hard as I tried all day, I could not find one bit of commonality with these girls at all. That night, everyone from the tour assembled for a meet and greet. This was the point where I realised that I was the I was the only guy in the tour group. I was on tour with twelve other women. This was day one, and I had sixteen more to go. I didn't want to be there. The good thing about being on tour, though was that there were other companies touring alongside. So I had a chance to meet other people. Simon and Sarah were on the same route, so we crossed paths at points here and there. We, ar- we arrived at Gallipoli on the eve of Anzac Day and had a guided tour of the, of the museum and the grounds of the battlefields. It was heart-wrenching to see what the soldiers were faced with back in 1915. There was an option to visit the trenches but I chose not to go. This was one of the biggest regrets I have following my tri- following my trip to Gallipoli, as really, I was just being lazy and couldn't be bothered. I should have gone. In the late afternoon, we gained entry to the service area, which was now perfectly manicured grass and paved asphalt rather than steep cliffs of the early 20th century. I did notice, which I found quite odd, that the population at the service consisted of more girls than guys. Being a service to honour fallen soldiers, who were all men, I thought the more guys would be there to pay their respects. Maybe women have kinder hearts. It was a mystery. That night was spent chatting and listening to music. The following dawn, the ceremony, ceremony began with the chilling sound of the bugle call. For every commemoration of Anzac Day, two minutes of silence comes after the last post. It doesn't matter where you are when you hear that sound, you stop and think about the fallen soldiers. Hearing the last post makes you think about about what soldiers have gone through, even when you're sitting in silence on your couch at home. So imagine listening to the bugle while standing at Gallipoli with a breeze blowing off the water. I knew everything about the significance of Anzac Day and the importance of being there at Gallipoli, but the emotional disconnect I felt as a result of my head head injury overshadowed my experience. I just couldn't seem to take myself back in time to have any empathy with the soldiers in that battle. I could not comprehend it whatsoever. 
telling me to imagine what it would have been like for the young for the young Aussie men was like asking me to asking you to imagine the feeling of being a horse. You can't because you can't even begin to imagine what being a horse feels like. With my injured brain, I felt it very hard to put myself in someone else's shoes. So it was impossible for me to gauge the enormity of the task the soldiers faced. For this reason, I didn't get as much out of the dawn service and the visit to, to Gallipoli as I had hoped. I'm just grateful that I knew exactly how to behave during that solemn event. If my brain injury had been even more severe, I might not have. I was truly lucky enough to be able to understand the importance of the dawn service. I spent years in rehab with some people who, because of their own own brain injuries, might not have understood why they were there. Just going to go out of the book quickly here and talk about, uh, I get this feeling uh, quite often, and, and that is that feeling of, of gratitude for how, how uninjured my brain is compared to other people that I've met. And I really, really feel lucky that I am still able to articulate my words to say, um, speak on a podcast or articulate my words to be able to have have a a, a conversation quite uh, quite f- um, what's the word I'm thinking of quite flowy with someone no quite um, like a, a conversation that's quite um, fluid that's the word I'm looking for a conversation that's quite fluid with someone. And when I was when I was going around the world, I often and I probably probably said this um, in prior podcasts, not sure, and I'll probably say it again. But I often when I was going around the world, I I really did stop and think to myself how lucky I was to be in a position that would allow my brain to still function enough to be able to do the things that I was doing. And I guess that's that's kind of what gratitude's about. It's about about looking at what you have and what what you can still do, rather than what you don't have and what what you can't no longer do anymore. And this, I guess, is how I've uh, how I've gotten through many situations, just by being grateful for what I've got. All right, back to the book. When the ceremony came to an end, I realised that I had a disconnection issue, but. At least I could appreciate what it meant to be there on the day. On that, on the day, I hope that sometime in the future I will be able to re-engage with events like this because there was nothing I wanted more in that situation than to have the feeling of connection I once had. I wanted to feel the heartache like everyone else. The next stop on tour was Troy, the Bronze Age city. That was the setting of the Trojan War, which took place around 1200 to 1300 BC. In 1863, a famous German archaeologist and businessman, Henrik Schliemann, discovered what appeared to be the Lost City, but turned out to be one of the most famous archaeological finds in history. He actually uncovered the site of nine cities stacked on top of each other going back as far as 5000 BC. I have given you these facts to show you how far back in history this trip took me. But if you can understand how hard it was for me to connect with an event that took place in 1915, 
just over a hundred years ago, imagine how hard it was for me to connect with something that was 7,000 years old. All I could do was enjoy the place from behind the lens so that just maybe I could look back on the photos in the future and make the connection I longed for. Just going to go out of the book quickly and talk about the Trojan horse. Now, most people know a Trojan horse as a virus that gets into your computer and then kind of destroys it from the inside. So where that came from was was a, this uh, from in that Trojan War? A tro- after that Trojan uh, the Trojan War, a a a horse a horse sculpture was sent into this sent to the city of Troy as a gift. Um, not sure what the gift was for. Maybe it was a gift to say congratulations, you beat us. I don't know. But um, they they that 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 horse was taken into the city, and then. Uh, it was taken in there by the Greeks, and the Greeks were trying to take over that city for, for, for years on end. And they wheeled this horse right into the center of the city. Now, inside that horse were actually a whole bunch of soldiers. And when, I guess, when it was dark, they come out of the, the horse and they overtook the city. Now, that was that was the myth, and that was where the Trojan horse from the computer, the computer virus, that's where that came from. But the Trojan horse actually is believed to be just a myth and it was never actually, uh, it was never actually used to overtake, uh, take over the city. And when we went down there in 2013, it was under renovation. So we didn't actually get to see anything of the Trojan horse. We basically, we, 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 we were on the bus uh, we stopped. We, that's right. We stopped for I don't know ten minutes. Um, we had a look around it, uh, and it was all bought, um, all fenced off, so we couldn't really see much of it. We couldn't go in it or anything. Um, so yeah, that was pretty uneventful. And the reason I'm telling you that story, I don't know. Uh, it was because that's where the Trojan horse of the computer virus comes from. For anybody who was interested. All right, back to the book. Our last stop before heading back was a spectacular thermopause at Pamukkale, a city in the southwest of Turkey. Visitors were welcome to explore the thermal pools, but only with only with shoes on, which made for quite a slippery slope. Regardless of the fact that my balance was shit ass, I walked into a pool holding my camera with the one and only hand I had that worked, oblivious to the fact that I was only meters away from disaster. I started taking photos of this amazing place. Well, the next thing I knew, I had lost my footing and down I fell. I felt as if the fall was in slow motion. As it turns out, the slow motion gave me a moment to think about what I was going to do. With one hand incapacitated, I only had the other arm, my head and my all my ass to break my fall. Well, as my most valued possession was in that hand, this left my head, my back and my ass to play their part. Another knock to the head could have been detrimental to my existence, so I opted for the two cushions of muscle I sit on. I stuck my one and only working arm in the air and did a perfect straddle press without the press. I landed in a seated position. Although I was soaked to the bone, my camera was still in working order. 
disaster averted. Cairo, the next checkpoint, was arranged courteously, courtesy of the tour company. We got on the plane and in a couple of hours we were there. All I had to do was act like a sheep and the tour guide would tell me what to do. I didn't know what I was looking for in this trip, but I didn't feel as though I was going to find it on a tour. I liked the thought of meeting new people every day, spending my time doing my own thing at my own pace and not being constrained by schedules and definitely not being stuck on a bus with the same people day in, day out with no time for adventure. We're now on page 126. I remember one girl telling me how much she loved being on tour because she got to see so many places and tick so many names off her list. Then in the future, she could think about her trip and look at the list and say to herself, I did that. Each to their own. I'd rather spend an infinite amount of time getting lost in the city, taking photos of things I know nothing about. Then I can look back on, on my photos and say to myself, I did that. Everyone travels differently, but I believe traveling is about being a traveler, not a tourist. I spent the first afternoon wandering around Cairo with, with two women from the tour. This was the first time on the trip that I felt unsafe. Not for myself, but for the girls I was with. I walked out of the hotel with two blonde women who were dressed as if they were going to the beach. We were warned before we left the hotel about some of the men in this city. But the girls, in brackets, also naive Australians, didn't take much notice. The hotel clerk told us not to stop, not to look like we were lost, and never to ask for directions. We walked past a group of men standing on the first street corner we came to and could feel the eyeballs of eight men tickling the back of our neck and heard the catcalls they directed at the two blonde women. My natural instincts flared up and I dropped behind the, behind the girls to protect them. <laughs> to protect them? What was I going to do if we were, we were harassed by eight men? How could I protect them with my one, my one working arm? I was still getting used to the fact that I was supporting a disabled body. Well, we qu quickly took a left and headed straight back to the safety of the hotel as fast as we could. The girls promptly changed into long dresses and wrapped scars around their heads, covering every single strand of blonde hair. We, we walked back out the door without receiving a stare or a call. This was a very quick lesson the girls learnt about Egypt, and one they would not forget. Going out of the book quickly here. So that... Um, that when we when we went out of the hotel that day, uh, I, I straight away noticed how much how how bad the uh, the rubbish was in that city. It's like people just went to their balconies and just threw the threw their rubbish bags over the over their I don't know, over their fence onto the side onto the sidewalk, and maybe it was that the uh, maybe it was that the the garbage trucks that was where that was how they they took the garbage they just came past and just picked up the bags but nevertheless i thought it was absolutely disgusting and because of this the economic state that that was um that was in egypt i guess because because it's a third world country uh there was lots and lots and lots of people that and all men they're all men sitting at the front of their 
of their houses, watching the world go by, um, watching the tourists go by, uh, and just uh, just causing a little bit of havoc. Um, it was just, it was just because it was the first first third world country I'd been to. This was just such a such a big shock to me. Um, yeah, that's about it. All right, back to the book. The next day. We had time to explore the city with the rest of the group. That morning, I learned a big lesson in photography. I was taking pictures of a lady who was sitting in the gutter. I wasn't right beside her when I took the photo, but she saw me and she was not happy. This resulted in a swing of her walking stick, which could have given me a good old bruise if I hadn't have dodged it quickly. We are now on page 127. From that moment on, I never took a photo of anyone without without asking them for permission first. The afternoon plan was to explore the Great Pyramids of Giza, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I was excited as I had an, I had an image in my mind of the picturesque oasis in the desert. Well, where do I begin? The first thing I noticed was the stench of camel shit that was covering every square inch of ground we were, we were walking on. It seemed that every man and his dog were selling camel rides in the desert, or every man and his camel. Our tour guide told us that this was a must-do, so he took us to his favourite camel conductor guy, where everyone paid and jumped on a camel. I chose not to partake in this, as my hip, hip flexors would have made for a dangerous, wobbly ride, which... Definitely, definitely would have ruined my experience. Instead, I made it my mission to take a, a lonely planet-style photo of the great structures. This was the first disappointment of my Egypt experience. The second was the backdrop of the location. My imagined backdrop of palm trees in the desert were far from reality. Instead, it was, it was, it was the filthy, smoggy and smelly city of Cairo. The only exotic part to this experience was the temperature, which was breaching the 40 degrees Celsius mark. This made for a ripe old smell in what one could only call the camel's outhouse. I could not wrap my head around these 5,000 year old stone structures. The best way I can describe the feeling I had for many things in the ancient land was that it felt like a vivid dream rather than real events experienced with, with any emotion. What I saw did not feel real. Even as I brushed my fingerprints alongside the stone walls, trying to understand what was going on, I still could not comprehend the age in which these guys were built. Perhaps if I had been interested in history at school, or if I had more knowledge about the pyramids, things may have been different. So, again, instead of trying to search for a connection in places I wouldn't find it, I retreated behind my camera lens. We are now on page 128. After our nostrils had recovered from the death by camel experience at the pyramids, we headed towards Aswan, 10 hours south of Cairo, where... We could sail along the Nile in a felucca, a small wooden sailing boat. Destination Luxor, 250 kilometers south. We would be on board for the next two nights. Once we were off and away, 
I soon discovered why, the, why this trip was recommended. There was the most breathtaking silence I had ever experienced. Up on deck, I looked around and it felt like it could have been any time in history. But before long, ring, 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 ring. Nope, we're still in the 21st century. In the late afternoon, I felt an uneasy rumble in my stomach. I needed to go to the toilet, but I couldn't decide what to do. Do I make them stop the boat so that I could relieve myself? Or do I wait until the next dock? I kept getting up to say something to the crew, but then would sit, sit down again because I couldn't decide. With an injured brain, I find decisions very hard to make. As I've said before, decision making is a mental skill that requires many different cognitive functions. For example, I need my long term memory to decide whether or not I have faced a problem like this before. My working memory to hold that information in my head as well as ideas about the options I have and the option I should take. And I need to know my emotional state, which is how I feel about the situation. Asking the crew to stop the boat seemed like, like a simple decision to make, but in reality, the situation nearly killed me. Well, I could have died of shame at least. I finally bit the bullet and told our guide that the bathroom was calling and yep, it was kind of urgent. He said that in five minutes we were docking for the night. I was a big boy, so I waited. Oh, wow. This was the longest five minutes I experienced on, my, on the whole trip. But I made it. Let's just leave it at that, shall we? We're just going to quickly go out of the book and tell you a quick story. And it was definitely not about um, about getting to the toilet in time. Um, which I, know I will talk about that, actually. Um, it wasn't, I wasn't able to go to a toilet. Um, the way in which we all went to the toilet was we basically took a roll of toilet paper and got off the boat, went and found a bush and then we did our business. Because a fluker, a fluker is, a fluker is basically a piece of wood with a sail and a big mattress on it. And there was, there was no toilet facilities on the boat. So that meant that any time somebody went, had to go to the toilet, we had to stop the boat. But what we did was uh, every so often they would stop the boat and say, all right, everybody go to the toilet now. And that was how it, uh, that was how we went to the toilet. But where we stopped, it was a, and the tour, the, the tour company would have an alliance with these farms. And the farm that we stopped at, there was seven or eight men that lived there. And all they did Every day of the year, 365 days of the year, all they did was farm. So they would get up at dawn. So when the sun rises, they would get up. And then when they would keep working all day until the sun set, and then they'd go back to their little commune or their farm or whatever you want to call it. And each night they went back to their farm. They all just sat there and smoked shisha, which is a... Uh, it's like a, f a, a flavored smoke that you can smoke through a through a big pipe and they had many many bars around around Turkey around Egypt where you could go and you could you could choose your flavor that you want that you want to smoke and go off to your table and smoke smoke the shisha 
Anyway, uh, so so back to the farm. Uh, so we went up there, and that night we were all sitting around with these these uh, Egyptian blokes that were all smoking shisha, which I thought was a pretty cool experience. And then we went back to the boat and had dinner, and then kept on kept on sailing down the Nile. All right, uh, back to back to the book. On the boat, I met someone who shared my interest in photography. Laura had noticed that my camera was permanently held to my face and started to chat to me about about the passion we had in common. For the, rema- for the remainder of the trip down south, Laura became my tour buddy. She helped me come out of my shell that I had been hiding in, the same shell that had confined me at times in Sun Peaks. We are now on page 129. For the final night of the trip, our tour was booked on a luxurious five-star train to take us back to Cairo overnight. Although five-star in a third-world country is closer to two-star by first-world standards, the train's arrival time was four hours before I was due to fly out to Frankfurt, Germany, then on to Prague in, in the Czech Republic. I sat back, relaxed, and let the train do its thing. Laura and I were up all night chatting away until suddenly the, the train came to a dead stop. It started and stopped over and over again. So I decided to speak with the tour guide and tell him that I needed to be on that flight as I had a connecting flight that wasn't going to wait for me. If I didn't make the first flight, I felt I wasn't cognitively skilled enough yet to handle, handle sorting it out myself. My impulsive rudeness was the most dominant emotion that tried to take control of me at that moment. I knew that there was nothing I, nothing I could do about the situation, but I couldn't stop stressing. This nearly had me in tears as I was thinking of the worst case scenario and I didn't know what I, was, what I would do if that happened. I needed everything to run like clockwork because that was how I thought travelling worked. You book a flight, take your flight, and nothing ever goes wrong, right? My anxiety set in, and I went into meltdown. I guess this was the exact reason my mum had had giggled when I told her I wanted to go travelling solo. In the end, the train arrived three hours late. After a long night of stress, I calmed down a little when I was met at the station by two men who knew exactly how to handle a distressed tourist like myself. From that moment, I believed someone up above was on my side. Each of the men had a part to play in getting me onto that plane. One guy carried my bags and the other men led the, led the way. I had approximately 55 minutes to board the flight. I don't know what the traffic rules are in Egypt, but I'm sure we must have broken all of them. Usually, the trip from the station to the airport would take over two hours due to traffic. Well... It turns out that that day was a national holiday, so there was no one out and about on the roads. My emotions were all mixed up. I was nearly in tears, but I had adrenaline pumping through my body from head to toe. Because Egypt, especially Cairo, relies so much on tourism, the country treats the tourist guides like royalty. We're now on page 130. These two guys ran the show. And that became apparent as soon as I met them. There was another man waiting for us at the airport who conducted the handover. He and a helper took 
on the challenge of carrying my bag to the to the check-in. Walking through customs, I started to feel like royalty too, as there was neither one problem nor one question between the car and my seat in row in row four. I sat down and put the put the stress of the last twelve hours behind me. As the adrenaline rush from making the flight subsided, a metaphorical nine iron hit me. I was now on my own and I would have to do everything for myself in a country where I didn't speak the language. I had no one to help me, no one to look out for me and no one to tell me what to do. It was all up to me. To say I was scared was an understatement. It was at, that, it was at this moment I remembered that my, my strongest weapon was my mouth. All I had to do was open it and questions would fall out in an almost articulate fashion. This was my trick for getting around the world solo. Ask questions. If I didn't know something, most of the time I could ask somebody and I would receive the answer. If I didn't know how to get somewhere, most of the time I could ask somebody and they'd give me directions. This was a basic problem solving skill and I was so grateful that I still had the ability to use it. And that is the end of chapter 15. The next chapter is called This Is Travelling and I'll quickly read out the first paragraph before I head off. While I was in Canada I was told about a hostel in Prague called St. Peter's Inn so I had made a booking before I left. It would be my first checkpoint in Europe. Okay and that just about sums it up for today for this week's podcast. If you want to, if you want to get get a hold of me, you can uh, you can jump on my Facebook page uh, at the Injured Brain. Check me out on Instagram at the Injured Brain. If you want to look through some of my travel photos uh, from 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 Turkey and from Egypt, you can go and find them in the show notes. Uh, I'll put as many as I can in there. Um, I did actually. I lost a lot of. There was a, a lot of photos that I didn't uh, that I that I took that I actually couldn't recover when my uh, my hard drive shut itself through the trip, which I'll I'll be talking about uh, later on in later chapters. But my my hard drive shut itself, and I lost a whole bunch of photos, including all the ones that I had taken uh, in Egypt, but. Uh, but luckily, I actually had posted a number of those photos up on uh, up on Facebook, so some of them actually got saved. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button so you do not miss an episode. Uh, better still, uh, leave me a review. Tell me what you think of this podcast, or head on over to my social media and give me a follow. That's it for this week. I think there is nothing more that I can say uh, this week. You do you and I'll do me. Be kind to everyone. Be kind to all of the people in your life because you never know when you're going to need them to do you a favor. Okay, that's it. I'm out. See ya. Thanks for tuning in to the Crashing Into Potential podcast. I really appreciate your support. 
You guys are the reason that I do this. So if you haven't already, hit me up at The Injured Brain, wherever you get your social media fix. And please don't forget to rate, review, and share this podcast to help me spread my message far and wide. See you in the next episode.